My name's Julie Kidd, um, and we'll go through my story a little bit um, throughout the slideshow. And I, just, I really want this to be kind of an open discussion, a dialogue um, about, I'm going to tell you my story um, and my adventures. Um, but I'm just glad that you guys are here. Um, this is my first time at this conference, so I hope you guys are enjoying it as much as I am. I think there's so many challenges presented to you here and references and everything else. I think it's just a great a great weekend. Um, also, like the um, relaxed atmosphere, I have to say, this is my first time present something in jeans and toms um, with no references on my slides, which I like that. So, um, so anyways, again, just open up if you have any questions. Just raise your hand. I'm very easily interruptible. Um, I also can get off track sometimes, so just kind of stir me back on the road if we get off track. But um, So objectives, if there are objectives, I want to give a little background on myself, just who I am, where I came from, and why I'm here right now. Um, I want to give – how many of you guys are pharmacists or pharmacy students? Can we do it one more time? Okay. That's really, really, really encouraging to me. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But even um, preparing for this talk, I really thought there might be three people in the room that are pharmacists. So that's really encouraging, really encouraging. Um, so I want to give you guys opportunities, and I know you're, like, surrounded by opportunities to serve as a pharmacist, but locally and internationally. Um, and then, again, just have an open discussion possibly at the end. So a little bit about me. I was born and raised in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, I saw someone from Cleveland. Any of you? You're from Cleveland. I got married in Cleveland. Yeah. Um, and then I went to pharmacy school at Samford. There was a guy who graduated from Samford. I don't know if he's here. Go Bulldogs. Um, then I moved to Charlottesville, Virginia. Go UVA to do my PGY1 um, residency. And then I stayed at UVA um, and worked as a clinical pharmacist for two and a half years after my residency. Um, at that point, I met my husband, who was a Spanish teacher, um, and we decided we wanted to get married, um, and we decided that we didn't love our jobs, um, so we decided to quit and move to Latin America. So two weeks after we got married, we um, told our parents, you know, we're moving to Latin America. They knew a long time ago, but they um, thought we were crazy. Um, I thought we were a little crazy. I, I've done a lot of traveling, but I had never been to Latin America, spoke this much Spanish, um, so I was like, all right, we're going to Latin America. And, and at first when we were tr planning the trip, we just wanted to travel. Um, and then when we sat down and really prayed about it and really thought about it, we wanted to make it more um, memorable and more challenging to us. And so we wanted to do missions. That's all we wanted to do. And so we met with our church um, in Virginia, and they, they set us up with two families who were in Latin America. One was in Nicaragua. One was in Bolivia. Um, and we just emailed them and said, hey, we are getting married, and we're coming to Latin America. We want to help you. I'm a pharmacist. I'm a Spanish teacher. Can we help you? And they said, yes, come now. So, um, so off we went two weeks after we got married, which was a great thing. I think the Lord put me in that position for a reason. Um, maybe as an independent woman, it was going to be hard for me to learn how to submit to my husband unless... I couldn't speak the language, and it was not safe for me to walk around by myself. Um, so I had to learn in the first few weeks of marriage how to submit to my husband, which was awesome. Um, 
And then, so we were there for about nine months total. We got back in April. Um, we were in Virginia for a little bit for the summer, living with some friends. Um, where I was working a little bit at the hospital. And then we decided to move to Portland, Oregon, which is where we are now. Um, I'm actually doing a master's in public health um, and working. I'm working at Oregon Health and Sciences, which is a, a teaching hospital in Portland. And my husband has decided that he does not want to teach anymore. He wants to be a physician. Um, and he has astronomy as his only science. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> he, it's a long road, exactly. So he is doing a post-bac program right now to do all of his prereqs for med school. Um, so it is going to be a long road, but it, but it's I'm, I'm super excited. And for our dream, which we're going to talk about, um, it's necessary. And he's working hard and doing great, and it's it's good. So now I want to flip a little bit and talk about frustrations I've had with pharmacy, and maybe you guys can speak to that as well. Um, so during pharmacy school, I had the opportunity when I was a fourth year to travel to China to do a medical mission trip. Um, it was the best time I've ever had in pharmacy. It was just probably the simplest pharmacy I've ever done, um, but the most meaningful to me. And so once I got out, I knew I was going to do a residency, but then after I started working, I really looked into medical missions, and they you know, advertised nurses and, and doctors and PAs and nurse practitioners and midwives and um, blah, 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 and no pharmacists. And I'm like, wow. Why, why did I do that? Why did I waste four years of my life, you know? And, um, and, and sometimes I still feel that way. In my job now, I'm a clinical pharmacist, and sometimes I just feel like I'm the medication police, you know? Like, I'm on the surgery and GI team at, my new, at the new hospital, and, yeah, I care about Ms. Smith, and her medications are correct, but, like, Ms. Smith never sees me, and I never see Ms. Smith. And so it's hard sometimes to be a pharmacist and not have that connection, um, some, people, some people don't like to have that connection, and so pharmacy is a field for you. <laughs> but I like people, and I want to talk to them and, and connect with them. So it's been kind of hard, and um, so I've questioned a lot, like, why did I go to school for four years and waste this much time? And um, So when I was in Latin America, it really confirmed that we wanted to do missions at least part-time. Um, so I prayed and I fasted a lot about, should I go back to school to be a PA or a nurse practitioner? Um, or a master's in public health, and I still don't have clear answers, um, but I was not willing to give up pharmacy at that point. Um, I think I did it for a reason. I think I've been blessed with opportunities for a reason, um, and so I said, I'm just going to apply to MPH schools, see how that opens doors, and then we'll go from there. If I want to go back and do a PA later, I can. So I don't know if, if any of you have any comments about frustrations of missions and being a pharmacist, or you think it's great, um, if you wanted to change careers like I did, or I'll keep going. Um, so a little bit about my short-term missionary career. So we were, like I said, mainly in Nicaragua and Bolivia. In Nicaragua, we were in Granada, um, and we were with Adventures in AIM, which is a new organization um, in Georgia, out of Georgia. So when we were there, we, um, so we did medical and non-medical things, but we worked a lot. Um, we went to a local dump where people worked day in and day out and just digging through trash to find things to recycle so they could sell or food for their family. Um, the kids didn't really go to school. They had the option if they wanted to go to school every day. So lots of times the kids were there digging through the trash with them. Um, it, we'll show some pictures later. 
Um, we also went to a Japanese hospital, which was just a hospital that was funded completely by the Japanese. And so our intentions at first was to go and help the nurses and, and do blood pressures and, and do medical things. But then we got there. We were, had scrubs on, and we were white people, and they, I think they would have let us do brain surgery if we wanted to. Um, and we just, like, fell in love with the patients, and um, the patients that are there um, are there for a long time, usually, because they have no idea when the supply of medications are coming, when blood products are coming, so they're just waiting for surgery or just waiting. And so we just would hang out with patients all the time and, and get to know them and love on them and sing with them and pray with them. Um, we also did a lot of Bible studies with addicts. Um, Latin America has tons of um, guys, mainly, who are addicted to alcohol and drugs, and so we did Bible studies with them. And we worked with, if you all heard of Young Life in the States, it's called Vida Hoven in, in Spanish, so we worked with them. Um, in Bolivia, we worked in um, a town called Santa, or a city, a huge city, in Santa Cruz. We were with South America Missions, which is a bigger organization. And we worked with um, a husband and wife who were both physicians, and so we would do medical clinics in indigenous villages with the IRA people. Um, we also worked at a clinic called Mission of Hope. And we did an English class using the Bible as our textbook to professional working class. But first I want to talk about some local opportunities. So I know that you guys all can't quit your jobs and travel to Latin America for a year. So there are things to get plugged into locally in your um, town. So free clinics. So I got to volunteer at the Charlottesville Free Clinic for three or four years while I was there, and it was such a great opportunity. Those people don't have any insurance. Um, usually after a long day of work, I didn't really want to go volunteer, but once I was there, it was such a great opportunity. And um, Students, if you're trying to boost your CV, these volunteer things really do look good. Um, and just it's very important to be involved in your community. So... Free clinics are huge. Christian Pharmacy Fellowship. Are any of you guys members of Christian Pharmacy? Okay, good. So there's just tons of opportunities within CPFI um, to be involved with. There's prayer breakfasts. There was CPFI in my pharmacy school, and it was just such a great opportunity to just worship um, as students and, and our faculty together and um, have prayer breakfasts. So I encourage you to look for pharmacy schools near you where you can get involved with that. Um, the medical reserves are, are <laughs> I don't even know why I put this on here, because I joined this, like, a month before I left Virginia, so I don't really know much about it, um, except it's a, um, an organization that goes in, basically, in an emergency situation and would help, and so you just do some training beforehand in case there's ever a hurricane or, whatever, or earthquake or whatever, which is a great opportunity as well. So it's low-key. You don't have to really do much unless something happens, so that's another, and there's a website if you want to find out more about that. And then there's this thing called RAM, a Remote Area Medical Clinic. Have any of you guys heard of RAM? So this is RAM's mission. I'm actually not going to read that to you. But basically, they, they provide medical, dental, vet, eye care. Um, what else? That might be it. Um, all, all over the U.S., mainly in rural populations. Um, I think 60% is in rural populations. Um, Everybody is a volunteer. They have pilots who will go um, across seas to, to help people as well. Um, and everything is, is donate, donated from medical supplies to the vehicles they use, to the pilots they use. Everything is donated. And this is not a Christian organization, but it's still a great opportunity to serve. Um, so a little history. It was founded by Stan Brock, 
who um, spent a lot of his younger years in the Amazon, and he saw how people in the Amazon could die of a simple cut or a wound and just didn't have the medical facilities that they needed like we have here, and they would die from these infections. And so he came home, um, I don't know, some year to do some television show. Let me, I don't know. I've never heard of it. Wild Kingdom. Have you all heard of Wild Kingdom? Okay. Um, so he came home to be in Wild Kingdom, and he vowed to himself that he would, I guess after he was in the show, um, he would provide health care to people who couldn't afford it or who didn't have insurance. Um, and so he did. And so, like I said, it's medical, surgical, eye, dental, veterinary care provided to thousands of people every year. Um, and so he doesn't stop. He, um, I, I met him briefly at the clinic that we did. And um, he's from Australia, and he, like, still dresses in the, um, like, khaki pants, khaki shirt. Like, what's the alligator guy? Yeah, that's like what he dresses in, and like, and on the website, that's what he has in every picture too. So, so they want to start out programs in in Africa and a clinic in in Latin America. Um, they want to have this airborne medical treatment center, which for you adventurous people out there, you like literally jump out of a plane into areas where they don't have any medical care. You like have a pack, you hike in, they drop from the plane the medical supplies as well, um, and then when you're done with the clinic, you hike out for like days. So, if any of y'all are into that, um, I don't want to do that. And then they want to do a flying hospital as well, kind of the same concept, except have the hospital like on the plane itself. And so I wrote these. These are the only notes I have, but um, I just want to give you the statistics for 2010. So they saw approximately 450,000 patients. Um, 52 million dollars of free care was donated. Um, Volunteers were about 60,000. They saw 64,000 animals. They gave eyeglasses to 8,000 people, and 15,000 teeth were extracted. So that's a lot of health care given. So in July or June of this year, um, I went with UVA, the hospital I was working with, and they sent a team down to Wise, Virginia, which is like this big, this big, um, and we did a medical clinic for the weekend. Um, so this is the truck that they use to um, move all their goods with, um, their eyeglasses. And they can produce or make specific lenses for about 200 glasses a day in this little tent. It's pretty amazing. Um, and then the bone density test, which I thought was pretty amazing. I hadn't had my bone density test done since when I was a student and had to do labs and all that, which I'm not sure how accurate it was because I was, like, off the charts, like, way up, so I don't know how accurate it was, but still, it's a great thing because these people coming to these clinics, I honestly couldn't believe I was in America. I thought I was still in Latin America um, at this clinic because they have not taken care of themselves, basically, because they have no insurance. So here's pictures of the medical clinic where they would go and register and they would be triaged. Um, you get a chest x-ray. Um, you can have a mammogram. So... I put all these on here just to say, like, it wasn't just primary care of, yeah, you have diabetes, you have hypertension, but there was some pretty extensive stuff that happens at this clinic. And then the dental care. Um, so this is just, like, a fraction of the dental clinic. Um, it was amazing. And they have these, like, 16-gallon buckets that they just pull teeth left and right. I wish I had the numbers for the week, the three days that we were there, how many teeth were pulled. But um, it's amazing. And a lot of these are students, dental students, um, yeah, it's great. And then this, you can't really see it, but that's a chiropractor. 
So there was just a whole spectrum of healthcare represented at this fairground. We met at a fairground. Um, so a patient could come, and they came from Indiana, Tennessee, Kentucky. They came from everywhere, and they could have everything done in a weekend. So it was really amazing. And then there was a pharmacy. Um, and so the Ram Pharmacy, here we are at work. Um, so we brought two computers, two printers, and functioned just like a pharmacy. Um, we printed labels. We pre-counted antibiotics and ibuprofen, things that we knew the, dental, um, the dentists were going to use. Um, so those are ready to go. Um, we, had, we worked with a, a pharmacy school, so they got to practice counseling patients. Um, and then we had a partnership with the Kmart that was in town to give vouchers for narcotics. We didn't have any narcotics with this. So they would take the voucher, go to Kmart, and they could have their pain meds for these procedures. Um, so, again, we worked with these local students, and it was a really neat opportunity um, for them. I, I'm trying to think. I went to a Christian pharmacy school, so we didn't have to have, I don't think, like service hours. Um, but part of their curriculum, they had to have so many service hours. So they were, like, you know, waiting for their two hours to be up, you know. And so they were asking us, like, so with your job, do you have to have so many service hours? And we were like, no, you know, like. We just want to do this. We want to serve. And they just couldn't believe it that we would give up time, you know, and, and come out and do that. So it was really a good opportunity to kind of share with the students. Like, it's good to be involved in your community, and it's good to volunteer your time. And it makes you feel good about yourself. So, um, And here we are, hard at work. Um, so patients would, like, drop off the prescriptions at the front. That's where the pharmacy students usually were and asked about allergies and date of birth and, and then passed it on back. Um, and here, if it wasn't pre-counted, this was the pharmacy that we used. So it was a pretty decent little formulary. Um, and, yeah, that's another patient just dropping off a prescription. So we filled 3,000 prescriptions that weekend. So it was busy. We worked hard. It was really hot. Um, but it was really, really, really rewarding. So RAM, look it up. I think it's mainly southeast. Of the, of the country, but it's a great organization. If you go to their website, they'll um, list all the dates and dates for international trips as well. And check out Stan Brock and his suit. So now we're going international. Um, so this is Granada. It's a very majestic place, um, Granada, Nicaragua. So this is where we spent about four months um, last year, and it was settled by the Spanish. It has a lot of um, Spanish decor. It's the... the Square is just beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. So we worked with a family called the Kays who had been down there about four years when we came, and they had bought this piece of property, um, and this was the base that they, that they built. And they, it, it actually looks really – it's a beautiful piece of land and a beautiful property now, but they talked about when they redid the roofs of this, just rats were falling down from the ceiling and – it was, it was really bad. So they've done amazing work. And this is where we would have church, just out here. It was outside. Um, so if it rained, you just got wet. Um, but, um, and they have a, a garden. And then they also built, um, like, a guy's dorm and a girl's dorm. And so they have teens from the U.S. come down all the time for short term or six months. Um, so, or people from our church that would come down and, and volunteer and work with them. So they've done a, a great job just building this base so that people could come. So this is the dump ministry that we talked about. Um, and I remember the first time we went, we would take this, um, like, open-air truck back there, and we'd all pile in, like, 20 of us pile in. And um, as we, like, neared the gates of the, of the dump, you could start smelling it. 
Um, and I was just like, I can't do this, you know. And I almost thought, like, I don't, I don't want to be near these people. Like, we were stepping over the trash to get to them. And I was just disgusted. I didn't, I didn't know if I could do it. And so what happens was we would um, have a small devotional. We'd have some, like, praise and worship. We would, um, someone would share some scripture, and we would pray, and then we'd share a meal together. And so during that time, like, we're holding hands and praying, and, like, I'm holding a child's hand who's just filthy. And, I mean, I just start, like, weeping, weeping, weeping. And as I'm serving beans, I'm, like, weeping in their beans as well. Just, like, God totally broke my heart. Like, how are, how are people living in that, you know, when I'm living the way that I'm living? It just, it, sh- it, it was crazy. But, um, so anyways, here is, like, what they do. So these big dump trucks come in and just, dump the trash and they literally like shove each other out of the way to get the new trash because that's the best goods that they have and um like I said children are out there women are out there everybody is out there um I think they make a dollar a day U.S. which is actually a decent income for them and so here we are again just having a little time of praise and worship and then we'd pray and just notice the scenery in this top picture um like that's all the dump the white stuff and then before Right behind it is this gorgeous mountain. And right behind that is this gorgeous lake. And so if the trash just keeps going a little bit farther, it's going to be in their water supply, which is their water, which is their fish, which is a lot of their um, what, a lot of their products that they use on a daily basis. So this is a huge issue. I know that we have dumps in the States as well. I don't really know what we do with it, but um, it's a big issue. And this right here is actually a woman carrying that bag of trash to go to go dig through to see if there's bottles to recycle or food for their family. And this was just one of my favorite kiddos. He was always there, um, never really smiled. He just kind of looked like that the whole time, and um, <laughs> he was he was great. But then, so so the week after week when we went back, you know, the the medicine or the being in a hospital, I just thought this bacteria, you know, like. Something's got to be done. And so I started thinking, like, what is something we can do to help these people besides just serving a meal, besides just praying with them? Like, we have to do something. You know, they have to know that they don't have to live like this. Um, And so we were like, let's just educate them on simple sanitation. Like, let's teach them how to wash their hands and wash their hands correctly. And so we would take buckets of water and soap and towels and wash their hands before they ate. And, And we would have scripture on um, you know, your body is a temple, like you should take care of it. We teach them um, the shoes that they wore to go to work. Take those off before you go into your house at night so you don't carry that bacteria into your house. So just simple, um, and as I'm learning in public health school, public health issues, you know, the just simple education. Which I was at a talk earlier today, and she lives in the bush. She's a PA, and she, like, lives... She... She lives in the bush, and she said she um, runs a women's center. She delivers babies, and she said, "If I can leave you one piece of advice, is educate your patients, because if she leaves, she's educated so many people around her that that multiplies and multiplies and multiplies and multiplies. So just simple education. If you guys go on short-term, long-term, talk to the people, talk to the local people, and." Give them simple tips of what they can use to put into their own local environment and culture that they can multiply. And so when you leave and you get home and you can shower whenever you want, they still have that to rely on. And so this, this is probably, oh, speaking of which, 
Um, this is probably my favorite picture of all time. This is my dad and his fiance. <laughs> so we just moved to Portland, and, and they live in Tennessee, and so he was super sweet and supportive and came to meet me this weekend to see me. So this summer we had the chance to go back to Nicaragua, and my dad, who had never been out of the country, um, was not very supportive of me going in the first place, um, wanted to go and see what we had been doing for the past year. And so I said, all right. <laughs> but I was a little nervous about it. Um, so this was, a, this was about day three of the trip. Um, and I could tell that he was not very comfortable with the people, with the language barrier, with the culture, with anything. And so we were back at the dump. And this time the truck broke down. Um, outside of the dump, so we had to literally walk for 10 minutes or so in trash to get to the people who were working there to serve this meal. And so I'm walking in front of him, and I can just hear him the whole time saying, you know, complaining about, <laughs> i got to give these shoes away, and blah, blah, blah. And, um, so we get there, and we sing some songs, and then one of the guys, that, one of the local guys just threw the towel to him and said, hey, you get in there and, and help wash, your, wash their hands. And it was amazing to me to like kind of step back and watch him, who was not comfortable at all, um, wash these little kids' hands and realize that they're people just like we are and just like his nephews are, I mean, his grandsons are, and that they want to be loved and touched and cared for just like we do, you know? And so I think that was a turning point for, for the trip for, for them, for sure. But it was a really, really neat opportunity to have him there and just be supportive of what we were doing. I don't know if I'm doing something wrong. Yeah. Um, and so here is one of our good friends named Rosita. Um, this is, I don't know if anyone speaks Spanish. This means Sister Rosa. Um, we met her in the hospital one of the first days that we got there. And she, 20 years ago, was run over by a bus. Her leg was run over by a bus. Um, and so they tried to go in and take bone from the other leg, as well as um, skin grafts, et cetera, et cetera, to fix her, her bone. But as you can tell, it's still just infected, and it's just not corrected. She called it her hoof, um, and it really was like a hoof. Like, it just was like a bone. Um, so we met her and immediately just fell in love with her. So the reason she was admitted this time was she fell and broke her hip, and so she was there waiting for a surgery, but she was anemic, and so the hospital didn't have any blood, um, so she was just waiting around for surgery until the hospital could find blood to take her to the OR. Um, so this is a, a picture of her other leg where you can kind of see where they cut um, to try to correct the, the hurt leg but didn't do a great job. Um, and then this, this is us in the hospital. Again, white people in scrubs can, can kind of do anything in third world countries, and her friend was always there, like, always there, and they lived probably 40 minutes away, I would say, and she was there like every day, um, just loving on her and, and supporting her, and so one day, though, we um, go to the hospital, and Rosa's not there anymore, and we were like, what? Like, what are we going to do now, you know? Um, but luckily, we had worked with the Lions Club to get her a wheelchair, and so we had we got her, um, it's like a social security card in there, so I don't know what to do about this. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> Thank you. 
So we knew um, that she lived in, she, we knew the name of her village, but we didn't really know much else about her except she lived by the elementary school. Um, and that's what, that's what her address said. It was Miss Rosa, whatever, um, third house behind the school. That was her address. Um, and so, you know, we were devastated that she went home, which really we should be happy that she left the hospital, you know, but we were really sad. So one day we were like, let's go find her. So we took a taxi to the entrance of her village, um, and we were like, I don't know, how are we going to find her? You know, it's just dirt roads after dirt roads. And so we asked the storekeeper as soon as we got there, and we were like, do you know a lady named Rosa? She lives by the, the elementary school. She's in a wheelchair. And he was like, oh, yeah, you just take this road and blah, 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 and, like, showed us exactly how to get there. So so we got to go to her house and see her, and um, she was doing she was doing okay, and um, she was still in the wheelchair, um, which I don't know if you can tell. It's like a plastic chair in wheels, so it's not... It's not too comfortable, but um, and here's just a few pictures. Oh, that picture didn't turn out. Um, of an ambulance there, and then of the hospital itself. So the hospital is open air. There's stray dogs and cats running in all the time, um, and people, like I said earlier, just hanging out, waiting for surgeries or waiting for their antibiotics. Um, it's really sad. And again, my dad was there for a few days. We had gone to the dump. Um, the day before, and then we went to the hospital the next day, and he actually had to, like, leave the room because the hospital disgusted him so much. The sheets are stained and with blood, and it's just not a clean environment. The windows are open, so flies are in and out. People's cell phones are getting stolen. So it's just not a safe place like we think of here. So here's our next friend, or brother, Juan. Um, Juan was an interesting guy, too. He was about 25, and he was born with um, a disease of his bones, so they didn't grow, like, to their full potential lengthwise or strengthwise, so they were really brittle. Um, and so when he was a little boy, he fell on his leg, and they went in to do surgery um, that they didn't correct and basically just caused him to have more problems along the way. Um, and so here he was, he fell again and um, had a fracture in his leg. And so he was waiting for surgery, um, and he usually had it wrapped up, but he did take it off one time, and it was disgusting how gross it was and how deep it was. I, I really don't know how all these people really don't die of sepsis because it, the bacteria is in their blood. It has to be in their blood. So we were, I was talking with the doctor one day, and he was on Vank because they thought it was osteo. Um, but then they just ran out of Vank, so they gave him Cipro one day. Then they gave him amoxicillin oral one day. And the next day they didn't know what they were going to get in the hospital, so they had no idea what he was going to get. And so they tried to encourage him just to amputate it. Um, but Juan did not want to do this. He had a little girl and a, and a wife to support, and he had no education, so the only thing he could do was physical labor, and so he knew that he had to keep his leg to do that. Um, so he battled and battled and fought with these doctors because the easy solution was just to be to chop it off. So seven months later, um, when we were back this summer, Juan finally had the surgery, um, which was such a blessing. Um, but he definitely had some... some trials to go through. He showed up at the hospital a couple times. One time his, his surgeon was in Europe on vacation. Um, when he finally had the surgery, he called, the surgeon called one of our friends who was still in Nicaragua and said, hey, I need you to go to the hardware store and get these kind of bolts and these kind of screws and bring this antibiotics. And that's what they use in his leg to correct it. Um, but the time before he came, he came in and he checked himself in the night before. He had surgery the next morning. Um, so they checked him in, and then they realized there was no beds in the hospital. So they said, just come back in the morning real early for your surgery. So he did, and, and he lives, you know, 40 minutes away. 
and had to take public transportation. So we came back the next morning, and they realized that they couldn't check him in because they had used yesterday's date as his admit date, and so and they didn't know how to correct it. Um, so things are just backwards, and they aren't efficient there, and so that's why it took seven months to have the surgery. In the, in the U.S., it would have taken 12 hours to have the surgery, you know. Um, and then here's just a few more of our other friends that we made. Um, this is Winston. Um, he, ironically, was um, supported through the church there to go to a rehab program, which um, is called Peniel. Um, so he was addicted to crack was his, his big drug. So we sent him to rehab. He came back home. He was doing great, and then he got mixed up in the wrong crowd again, um, and he got shot. And it, he got shot in a leg, and it just shattered his whole his whole leg, um, his bone. And so he was back in the hospital. Um, but during that time, he kind of realized that he had screwed up, that he had um, not made some best decisions. And so every time we were there, he was reading his Bible. He was talking about it with the other people in the room. Um, and him and Joe, that's my husband Joe, he is very fluent in Spanish. So they had, like, deep conversations about scripture. And um, he just thought it was a great opportunity to be in the hospital to witness to other people. So it was, a, it was a really good story for him. And this is Margarita. Um, she actually lived on the same street where the church was, and I just I got to be good friends with her. And um, she had no f- friends or family ever in the hospital. And she was actually in the room with all the men at the at the beginning. So I like immediately went to her because I felt so bad for her. Um, so yeah, she had a bad foot infection, but she went home and she was okay. So now I want to go to Bolivia. This is Bolivia now. Um, so this is a trip I actually didn't go on, um, but I want to. And the physicians that we worked with, this is what they do during the summer. So basically, two, they do two trips for two weeks at a time, and they just float down the Amazon River um, in this boat right there. And they go into indigenous villages and set up shop of medical clinics. So um, they take... They take a bus, they take a plane, they hike, and then they take this little boat to get to their boat. So, I mean, it's, like, out there. Um, but it sounds amazing. So, also, there's children's ministry on a daily basis, so they just teach them basic basic math and um, do art and crafts with the kids. And then there's daily devotionals. Um, and I actually just emailed with Tony, and I haven't heard back from her yet. She, they live in Bolivia. Um, about how many people hear the gospel on those trips for the first time and how many people are baptized, but I haven't heard back to give you numbers. But I just love this picture of this guy getting baptized. Um, And then here's the medical team. So they're triaging patients right now and just doing basic glucose monitoring and blood pressure. And um, this lady right there, she was a nurse in the States, and she's she's been in Bolivia for like 20 or 25 years now. So she's a great resource to have down there. A dental clinic, um, this little girl right there has six toes. Um, and this guy right here, this is Placido, and he's married to Tony. So he's Bolivian. She's American, but she was a, a missionary kid, and so she grew up in Brazil. So they got married, and this guy, he's a doctor by training, but he is a cowboy by heart. He, <laughs> there is nothing that he cannot do. He, loves, he has a farm and just loves to be outside. And so they're, like, in the middle of the jungle, and he's doing a surgery on an ear right now. Um, and then this is him doing the surgery on the little girl with the six toes. Um, and here's the pharmacy. So they need you guys, and they need pharmacists on this trip. Um, and when I 
was working with Tony, we just carried around this big tote, you know, the whole everywhere we went with the drugs. But it looks like they have a ton more medication than we had. So it's a great opportunity for you guys if you want to go to the Amazon um, this summer for about two weeks to go. There's also a dental clinic. Um, and then here's little girl's toes. She only has five now. I think it's amazing. And then here's a few pictures of just like the life on the boat and villages. So you can see that it's pretty rough, the villages that they go in. Um, this is their supply of water um, where they have to just well it with the buckets. And, and all their food and water, the people on the, on the boat, the Americans have to go out and hunt it or they have to pick it from the banana trees and they have to get their own water supply. So it's pretty, pretty rough. Um, you sleep in a hammock. Um, you kill your own food. That's some kind of beef. I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> I'm a vegetarian, so that looks absolutely disgusting to me. Um, but this little, this was their little boy, Noah. He was like five months at the time, and they took him on this trip. I thought it was absurd, but they trusted the Lord, and he went. He was fine. And then this is Jason. Um, this is another one of the missionaries washing his clothes. So it's pretty, pretty rough. Um, here's some more food. Um, they killed an alligator and had to skin it. And um, Bev, the nurse that I showed you, she was help skinning it. Um, and, of course, she had blood, like, all over. And she went to wash her, her feet in the water, and a piranha came and bit her toe. And so she had to spend the rest of the week in a hammock with her foot elevated, and they were just giving her as much antibiotics as possible. <laughs> so there are some risks. <laughs> Students, get out there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So here's the IRA villages that we worked in. Um, and Tony, this is a picture of Tony. This is the one that um, she was a missionary kid. And she went to Wheaton. She was a weedy, if y'all went to the talk. She went to Wheaton and um, knew she wanted to be a doctor and knew she wanted to do it overseas. Um, and so her professor just challenged her to do medical school overseas. So that challenge, if not coming back to the States to be a, a doctor would exist. And so that's what she did. And um, she went to medical school in Bolivia. She tried three times. And the fourth time she got into medical school. But she has a great, great story. But So she's been down there for 20 years. So she speaks, obviously, English, obviously Spanish. She speaks Portuguese because she grew up in Brazil. And she is speaking this um, indigenous language as well, this IRA, which... I think Spanish is hard. This is just, and a lot of it's not documented, and so they have no reference to go to. It's just what they hear over and over. So she's trying to learn this language to connect to these people. But So she goes to these villages on a regular basis, and so they, they trust her, and they know her, and they know that she, they're gonna, she's going to follow up with them. It's not just one time, and then she's done. Um, but it was really fun to work with her because I did act as a pharmacist and, and gave out medications, but she let me... Um, I gave it my first IM injection into this guy's bottom, and I was, like, shaking the whole time. Like, <laughs> he's like, just do it. I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, and, I mean, I got to do some things that I obviously wouldn't be able to do in the States. Um, so if anyone wants to be stretched um, in their skills, if you, if you wanted to work with Tony, I know that she would love to have you at her side. And, and she's trained a lot of community health workers. Um, to, so this village right here was about three hours away from Santa Cruz where we worked. Um, and so she would get out there, you know, once a month or so, but she had these community health workers go once a week to follow up on, on issues and just seeing how people were doing and take their blue, glucose and their blood pressure. And 
Um, I remember saying to Tony, we were giving out metformin, and I was like, oh my gosh, like, what if they have renal disease? We've got to really adjust this, you know, like, freaking out. And she's like, Julie, like, you can't, you can't do that. Like, you got to trust the Lord that he's going to take care of them. But Tony does do a great job. If they do go into a clinic and do labs, she makes sure that that clinic sends it to her and she reviews everyone's labs. So she's just an amazing, amazing, amazing person. So if you want to work with her, contact me and I will get you in touch. So while we were doing the clinic, the guys were building this village a church and also a well because they had no um, they had no place for fresh water. So they sent huge barrels with us to fill up with water every day. So that's what the guys were doing. So next we also worked with um, a clinic called Mission of Hope, Bolivia. Um, so this clinic um, is staffed year-round with Bolivian nurses, doctors, a pastor, and a pharmacist. Um, and then they have about six trips a year from the U.S. that comes down and, and does some more invasive um, surgeries and things that the regular staff wouldn't be able to do on a daily basis. It's completely free to the public. Um, they see about 500 patients a week, and every the, the medicine is free, the labs, exams are all free. Um, and ironically, the lady who started this was from Charlottesville, which is where we lived before we went down there, and one of my friends, she was a nurse practitioner, told me, like, you got to hook up with this clinic. Um, we didn't know anything about it, and it was only, like, two blocks from the mission base where we were staying. So we started going over there once a week and volunteering, and it's just an amazing place. Um, but Cindy, is Cindy Thacker is the name of the lady who started it. So she got involved um, in, in the 90s. She adopted three little boys from an orphanage in Santa Cruz, um, and then ended up having one more come live with her after a family in Mississippi decided they didn't want a little boy that they had adopted. So Cindy said for that boy to come live with him. So she has four boys from Bolivia. So she obviously has her heart and hands in Bolivia. So she continued to take trips down to Bolivia. And she was a nurse um, by training. And so she would bring down medical supplies and um, equipment and, and drugs and go and basically just hang out at the children's hospital and she found out that the nurses there would um, reuse their gloves once they just were rags would cut them into strips for rubber bands that they needed. Um, and so it was just a rough situation. So then in 98, she took her whole family, the ones that she adopted, and, and her blood family down there at Christmas, and they were painting, like, teddy bears and stuff on the, on the walls. And they um, noticed while they were doing that, a nurse came in and removed an IV from a little a little baby's arm, and so they thought that the baby was just going home, that the baby was well. Um, and the nurse came in later and told Cindy that basically the mom didn't have any money, and so if you don't have money, you don't get treated, you don't get payments. And so, and later the mom came in and she was crying and um, said that she didn't have any money to treat for baby. So that's just how the public hospitals are. You have to have money to get treated. Um, there's no Medicare or Medicaid. Um, so Cindy continued to take trips down there, um, and she kept having these, like, I've, I've met with her and talked to her numerous times about, she's had these visions from the Lord, like, this is what you need to do. And she, she's not, like, a crazy, you know, Christian, but she, like, would wake up having these dreams about, like, the Lord speaking to her and, like, clearly giving, or just multiple stories and examples. Um, so she, she kept going down there. Um, and then there's another little story, or another little boy who got his eye plucked out by a chicken. He lived, like, in, in the compo, in the jungle, basically. Um, and so the family put all the resources together to get to the hospital. 
um, and they didn't have any money, you know, to treat him, and the doctor said, I'm sorry. Um, so Cindy helped this little boy, but later she found out that a lot of the medical equipment she gave and the medicine she gave was, um, once she went back to the States, was being sold to the family when she had donated it or just not given to them at all. So she realized quickly that she couldn't do what she wanted to do in that hospital, that she had to do it in another facility if she wanted to really impact people. Um, so in July 2001, um, or in 99, she made another trip down there, and she met with one of her physician friends who was Bolivian, and she, she said, well, hey, there's a hospital for sale just down the corner, and it's on, like, the main bus line. Like, you should check it out. So Cindy went and checked it out. She went back home and prayed about it, and in 2001, she came back, and she bought this clinic for a million dollars in cash. Um, and the story of how she fundraised for this money is amazing, too. She never asked one time, hey, can you support this? If people, she said, you know, she'd be in the grocery store and see people, and they'd be like, hey, what's new with you? And she'd be like, I'll tell you what's new, and, like, give out all the brochures. And But she never asked for money. She just told the story, and people would just donate the money. Um, so she bought this clinic, um, and in 2002, it became fully functional with, like I said, the nurse or nurses and doctors, a pharmacist, and a pastor. So the two main trips a year that they take down or the two different teams is an ENT team um, and a GI team. Um, so we were down there. We got to be down there, and this is all just ironic or the Lord's timing. Um, when an ENT team came down from Charlottesville, where we were from, um, and they just did amazing stuff. You can read what they did. One of the most amazing things they did is it like kind of made me want to be an ENT, kind of. But um, they took a little boy who was only born with one ear, and they took cartilage from his rib and stuck it to his head. And then the next year, so they waited for circulation to build on his ear. And then the next year, once he had circulation, they formed an ear and then punched a hole and made an eardrum for him. So it was a two-year procedure. It was just amazing. And, um, yeah, so amazing things happen. And so the whole upstairs of this clinic is like a surgical suite, basically. And that's where they worked. And so here's just a few patients. Um, so every morning before the surgeries would start, they would have like a praise and worship time. And um, so here's patients in their gowns that are, were there for overnight just to be observed, were singing and, and worshiping. And um, these two little girls, um, so there's Mennonites in Bolivia. It was so odd for me to see white people down there. But um, there's tons of Mennonites in Bolivia. So these two little girls had their tonsils taken out, and they had to wrap up their arms so they wouldn't. Um, hurt themselves or try to mess with their mouths overnight. And then this is, like I said, this team, this ENT team was from Charlottesville, from UVA. And this guy, Phil Chen is his name, we had worked together in the hospital at UVA. And then we show up and we're like, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And so it was really fun to, to work in an environment like this um, with him. And then um, my last little story is from another girl from Bolivia. One weekend, we went away. Um, there was a thing called Carnival that was happening. And we it's kind of like our um, Mardi Gras, where everyone drinks and throws water balloons at girls and urinates in the streets, just nasty. And we were in, like, the biggest city <laughs> in Bolivia, so we just didn't want to be there. And so we went away to the mountains, and a lot of people had the same idea um, to go away. And there was pretty much no rooms for us to stay. Um, but there was one room, and it was kind of away from the city, and it was nothing to brag about, but it was fine. Um, it was a room. Um, 
and come to find out the owner's daughter-in-law happened to be in town. She was from the States. Her name was Julie, and she was a pharmacist. And I was like, wow, this is really weird. But she she came and did a lot of work in Bolivia, um, basically just public health work. She would go and just donate toothbrushes and toothpaste to, um, to different villages there. So she was there visiting her mother-in-law, and she told us about this little girl named Malinka who was born with a hole in her heart. And she had 10 months um, to have this surgery, or she basically would die. Um, and it was going to be like $10,000, I think is what they quoted her. And the dad was a taxi driver. The mom was a stay-at-home mom. Like, there's just no way that they could afford this. So the whole town, it was a really small town, was trying to come together to raise the funds for her to have this surgery. Um, but everyone in that village didn't have money, you know. But they were doing all they could. And so they put these flyers up. And, and it was really neat to see this community support. So, um, so anyways, we had told Julie of what we were doing in Santa Cruz and the clinic that we were working with, and she said, you know, please ask if they could do the surgery. So we went back after the weekend, we asked, but on a day-to-day basis, they couldn't do a heart surgery without a heart surgeon or whatever. But they do have a connection with another hospital um, who has a significantly decreased rate for, for kids for Mission of Hope. And so... Um, but it was still going to be a $7,000 to have this heart surgery. So it was good news and bad news um, to, to be able to get her in, but we knew it was still going to be expensive. And so so I wrote an email to Cindy, the owner of Mission of Hope, and, and told her, like, you know, thanks for checking in to this, but there's just no way that we can raise $7,000. Like, a lot of our friends and family have already supported us on the field, and I just can't ask them to, to donate more money with the economy the way it is. And and she wrote back, and she said, you know, no offense, Julie, I don't know you, but don't put God in a box. And I was like, wow, okay. And so the next day, we get an email from Julie saying that her friend from her church was donating all the money, $7,000. And so, um, anyways, Malenka got the heart surgery, like, the next month. Um, she's doing great. There she is after the surgery. Um, yeah, so it's just a great story. So there's numerous kids, Cindy just emailed me again and said that there's another little boy, same situation, that he's waiting for this heart surgery, um, but there's just not funds of it. So so my dream and my husband's dream, um, so I said he's going back to med school or hoping to go back to med school, um, which is going to be a long, long trip. Um, but we want to, and I guess I want to, if we have time to have a little dialogue about this. We want to establish a medical clinic, possibly um, in Granada, Nicaragua. Throughout our trip, we kind of prayed that God would re- reveal one place to us specifically um, that we would want to continue t- to work in because we didn't want to just spread ourselves thin. We wanted to be committed to a certain area and we a certain street, a certain church, and be there. So we'd love to have a medical clinic, but we want to train the local people to take care of their own people. So... Um, We want to train community health workers, which I've never done, um, and to basically just go out into their neighborhoods and do basic glucose monitoring. And then if something seems absurd, they go to their local clinics that are already established, that are already there, and tell them about it, and they can take care of their own people. And then eventually our dream is to have a building and maybe even like Mission of Hope where we would have teams from the U.S. come down. Um, So we just kind of want to be the support and the educators um, we would love to financially support these people to go in and be community health workers. And So our resources right now is um, Where There Is No Doctor. I'm sure you all have seen this book floating around at the, um, at the what are those things called that we can keep on? Yeah, thank you, the exhibits. Um, 
This is a great, great, great book. I don't know if any of y'all have seen it or read it, but it's a very simplified version of how to be a doctor, basically, when there's not a doctor around. Um, so we want to use this kind of as our textbook to train these people. Um, and then also the CHE, the Community Health Evangelism, which they are also at the exhibit. Um, and this is just an approach um, of just going into a village and kind of just befriending them and providing medical needs, and not only medical needs, but if a child has asthma, looking at their house and seeing if there's other factors that are going in besides just the child was born with asthma that they can correct. Um, and then, again, we just want to rely on local resources, so we don't want to reinvent the wheel. There's already plenty of clinics down there, um, so we want to rely on them, but just kind of um, educate a couple people from the church that we worked with to go out and, and treat their own people. So... That's our dream, and we'll see what happens. We are just praying about it, and in 10 years, my husband will be done with medical school. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, if y'all have any questions or just dialogue about any of that, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, it's in Santa Cruz. Yeah. Have you been to Bolivia? No. Yeah. Santa Cruz is not. It's just a bustling, dirty place. <laughs> but yeah, it's in Santa Cruz. Anything else? I a question about the, yeah. the trash dump uh, yeah. that you were showing working in. Uh, there are different organizations like Kepper and some of the church organizations that have had some success in some of those areas doing things like uh, training people and donating uh, rabbits, chickens, goats. To, to get people out of that cycle, give them a, a different means of income, food supply, and things, something like that might, might be useful in that situation. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point. Um, we went to Managua, which has a four times bigger dump than this, and they're, and they're kind of doing the same thing. They actually put a school right in the middle of the dump. And so the idea and the dream is not for those people to get out of the dump, but it's to educate. If they're going to live there, let's educate them so that when they're older, like, they can have potential to get out. So, and their work, how, I mean, there were huge pigs that people had donated, and, and that's their way to make some money. Um, so the idea is not, let's just get everyone out of here, because once they get out of here, like, they don't, they don't really know what to do. Like, this is all they know, is living in the dump. So that's not necessarily the fix-all. Nicaragua, no. We kind of pioneered the Japanese hospital. We were the first ones um, to go and do that. Um, but then it's been, once we left, there's other people who did the same thing. So other people are still going to the hospital. In Bolivia, with a husband and wife that are both physicians, they go, that's, that's their job. They have a clinic in their house, and then they go into the villages and do that. So, yeah. Thank you.